your writing is on the wall as far as I'm concerned. Eat most of your food earlier in the day and don't eat too late at night. That's just some general heuristics to live by. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Welcome, everybody. Today, we are going to be talking about a few interconnected health topics. Intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding, meal skipping, circadian biology. We're really going to focus on meal skipping in particular. And to join me in this conversation, I've invited two human OS collaborators, Jeff Rothschild, who is the lead developer of our fasting course, and Greg Potter, the lead developer of our course in circadian health and metabolism. Jeff, welcome. Give our audience an introduction to who you are. All right. Thanks, guys. I'm happy to be here and talk with you. I'm a registered dietitian. I've done a master's degree in nutritional science. I currently work in a private practice setting in Los Angeles, California. A lot of the focus of what I do is with athletes and endurance athletes, but I definitely work with a lot of non-athletes. And fasting has been something I've been interested in for quite a while. I've published some papers on it, and it's been of interest both personally and professionally. A lot of people when appropriate that I work with, I will include some type of fasting. And as we'll probably get into over the next few minutes, there's several different types of fasting that have been studied and can be appropriate to use for weight loss, for blood sugar control and cognitive function and these things. Thanks, Jeff. We met a couple of years ago for the listeners at the Ancestral Health Symposium. Jeff gave a really great talk about restricting your feeding to a limited period of time within the day, not eating after dark, and maybe we'll even get into some of that today. But for now, Greg, shifting over to you, please give our audience an introduction to who you are. Thanks, Dan, and thanks very much for the opportunity. I'm Greg. I'm in the final year of my PhD at the University of Leeds in the UK, and my project's mostly looking at interactions between sleep, diet, and metabolic health in UK adults. Perfect. I think we met over Twitter. We did. Greg was always responding to tweets that I put out there, at humanos underscore me, and then also putting up really great material. And I think it was when you finally had posted your own paper on nutritional effects and circadian biology that I was like, wow, this this guy really knows what he's talking about. And that motivated me to connect further with you and it started a great collaboration. So I'm glad we're all here today. So this like broader subject of eating timing and meal skipping, I think is one of the hotter topics in health today. It's really exploded onto the scene over the last few years. And there's still a lot of questions that remain about what's good, what's useful, what's effective, who's it right for. And so today I want to focus a little bit more on skipping breakfast, because that is, I think, a really common way that anybody who is currently engaging in fasting does it. Now, of course, people do it in other ways as well, but it's an easy one to do, right? You wake up in the morning, you're not that hungry, or even if you are, you just decide to not have your first meal until some point later in the day, usually around noon. Is that good for us? Before we get into that, there's some work that actually shows what regular eating patterns are like. Greg, tell us a little bit about some research in this area, what common eating patterns are for modern day humans. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So a particularly relevant study to this question, I think, was published in 2015. Sachin Panda was the senior author on it. And what they did was they looked at adults in the San Diego area and they used a smartphone app to characterize their eating patterns. So for three weeks, people took photos and they could annotate these photos of everything they had to eat and drink. And these were timestamps, so they knew when these events were occurring. The researchers then collected these photos and the written information afterwards. 
and determined how much they were eating and when they were eating. And also 47 of those people wore active watches to look at their physical activity patterns and when they were sleeping in particular. And by doing so, they could look at when they were eating relative to when they were sleeping. What did they find? Well, they found that on average, people ate over a period of nearly 15 hours each day. So the time elapsed between the first event that contained calories and the final event that contained calories was nearly 15 hours. And only 10% of the people had an eating duration or an eating period of less than 12 hours. About 23% of calories were consumed by midday and over 35% of calories were consumed after 6pm. What else did they find? They also looked at whether there was a difference between weekdays and weekends. So there's some research previously in the chronobiology literature, which has looked at sleeping patterns and how they differ between weekdays and weekends. And because people's sleep timing typically differs on work days and non-work days, they coin this social jet lag because for many people, mm. they'll sleep later on the weekends and they'll sleep in on the weekends. And as a result, when they go back to work at the start of the working week, it's like flying a time zone or two to the east. And well, about 69% of people experience at least an hour of social jet lag each week. So what they thought was maybe you see something similar with people's eating patterns. And that's what they found. They found that typically people consume breakfast about an hour and five minutes later on weekends versus weekdays. Right. Subsequently, they then did a study to look at what happens when you take these people with more protracted eating patterns, so people who are eating over a longer time period, and then are asked to eat over a shorter time period. And that's more relevant to today's question of what happens when you skip breakfast. To do a little bit of summary, they enrolled people into the study. The first part of the study over a three-week period, they used a smartphone app to collect information on food type calories, and then the timing. When were those calories coming into the body? And then also sleep and activity patterns by the Actigraph watch. And then they could look at what was the length of time that calories were being consumed in a person's what we call wake period or the time that they're awake. And a lot of these people were maintaining an eating pattern that was about 15 hours long. So first calorie in, last calorie in. Only about 10% of people had an eating window. The period where they're taking in their calories was less than 12 hours. Is that right? That's right, yeah. The second part of the study, they're now going to do some time-restricted feeding. So tell us about that. Yeah, so it was a small pilot study. Eight people who had eating patterns in which they spread out their eating over at least 14 hours each day were asked to restrict their eating period to about 10 hours each day and to keep that period consistent on weekdays and weekends. And when I say eating, I mean everything apart from water. Okay. This included five men and three women. And first, they were given a detailed presentation on the known benefits of time-restricted eating. So Sachin Panda in particular has done a huge amount of research using rodents and has found that using this time-restricted eating confers many metabolic benefits when rodents are given less than healthy diets, which are typically called high-fat diets, but notably they're also high-sugar diets. So Mm. these people... Then for 16 weeks, tried to stick to this 10-hour period. And each week, they were given a feedogram, which is a pictorial display of their eating patterns across a 24-hour day for the previous seven days, showing how well they were accomplishing their goals. And they weren't asked to change 
the actual quality of their diets at all. There was no information given about what you should eat or anything like that. The emphasis was purely on when they were eating. Mm. Followed them up at 16 weeks and they measured how heavy they were at that point. And they also gave them subjective self-assessments of sleep and how energetic they felt. So this is just a Likert type scale where you rate, for example, from zero to 10, how well you slept the previous week. Mm-hmm. And what they found is that on average, people lost over three kilos during those 16 weeks. And they did so by reducing their calories by about 20%. And that's noteworthy because what they found previously in their rodent research was that actually time-restricted eating causes many metabolic benefits independent of calorie intake. So if you restrict Mm -hmm. the eating period of these rodents, they don't actually eat less, but they are protected against obesity. The difference is that in humans, they do eat less but the result is that they did lose weight. They also felt more energetic and they reported that they slept better. And they enjoyed doing so, so much, all of them, that they chose to continue for the rest of the year thereafter. And the researchers then followed up one year after they began. And what they found is that they actually retained their weight loss. This is one of the reasons why the interest in fasting is such a craze right now is because weren't given complex instructions about what to eat weren't put on some sort of protocol that was very challenging for people to do, right? So first you have to look at how doable is something or perhaps how effective could it be, but then how doable is it, right? If it was extraordinarily effective, but very few people could do it, then it wouldn't really be effective overall in terms of improving public health. Weight loss is of enormous importance. And these people were put on this 16-week intervention. They took in less calories without being told to do so. And then they opted in to stay on a program for the next year. And they had not only maintain their weight loss, but they also had perceived improvements in their sleep and perceived improvements in energy level. That is really exciting to me. Yes. I was going to jump in a couple of things that I really like from a practical side. And so I I said, I work with a lot of people and this is definitely a tool that I look to is one of the first things I look to is shortening someone's eating window in the people in that pilot study were around, I believe 15 hours was their typical kind of eating window. Unfortunately, when someone's already eating in a 10 or 11 or 12 hour window, it doesn't work. You can crunch it a little bit, but you won't see, Mm. you wouldn't expect to see the drastic results that you would come from shortening by four or five hours. Yeah, that's a really important point. Yeah. So you really have to consider sticking on the practical side for a minute. If someone typically likes to eat breakfast and they can eat breakfast at 8 a.m., and then they normally eat dinner at 6.30 p.m., well, there's not a whole lot to work with there. The other side of it is people often like to have dinner with their families or some other social obligations, and that can tie into kind of where we're going with the next step then would be to say, okay, if I eat dinner at 7.30 or 8, then I should just start eating at 12 and skip breakfast. Mm -hmm. I think I'm jumping ahead a little bit because I want to point out one more really interesting thing, in my opinion, about this study. And That is using that app, and I think this is kind of an obvious statement, but smartphones are going to change the way research is done because once the person took the picture of their food and it was timestamped and sent in, it was erased from their device. So what this does is eliminate the possibility of what you might call a feedback effect. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're looking at a food log, the person might be writing it down and then they might say, oh my gosh, I've already had this, this, and the other thing today, so I better not eat these chips or you know whatever it is. Right. So there's this constant, even if someone is just supposed to be just writing down what they eat without judging it, there's going to always be that effect. So this is a great way to just take a picture and then it's done and it can minimize any of these effects. 
That's a really important point. So incidental improvement in dietary quality by this act of what you could call mindfulness by stopping for a moment, taking a photo of your food. Most people are probably going to think about that in that moment. So there could have been improvement in dietary quality simply by the virtue of the way that the study was conducted, but hard to go around that. Like you said, it sounds like they were trying to mitigate that as a possible confound to changing the results by erasing the photo. So two more comments. One is that weight recidivism is clearly a big problem. People typically don't have a problem losing the weight. It's a problem they have with keeping the weight off in the long term. So it's interesting that they wanted to stick on and that it stayed off until the one year mark. And then the other thing that I was just going to mention, picking up on what you just said then, was that diet quality did improve, even though they weren't asked to improve or change their diets. And I think one thing to consider there is when people are restricting their eating period, because the researchers didn't really speak to this. If you look at the supplemental data, then you can see individual food items and when they were consuming those food items. What they said is that because people restricted this eating period, they didn't move the items they're eating later in the day, which might be less healthy options. So things like alcohol and late night snacks, they just chose not to eat those at all. So I think one thing that's very relevant to future studies of this restricted eating is what happens when you change the actual timing of this eating period on people's food choices. Right. There could have been some aspect of the way that the study was conducted and the virtue of taking photos that could have had an effect on the dietary quality of the participants. Secondary option is that time-restricted feeding itself can have an impact on dietary quality perhaps by affecting neural circuits that change what we pursue and what we're interested in. And that is a possibility as well. There is a study in in Jeff's fasting course where we look at leptin sensitivity and how it's improved over a 24-hour fast. So there could be some mechanics that are taking place behind the scenes that are actually helping to improve the food that we pursue and our overall appetitive drive or our drive to eat. Jeff, you mentioned a really important point here. If they're going to do something like this, the easier way to time restrict your eating window is by skipping breakfast for a lot of people, not for everybody, but dinners tend to be a social event where you're with friends and family. Breakfast is a little more of an independent act, if you will. You can grab or make food before you leave the house. And so that tends to be an area where one, you've been on an overnight fast while you slept and a lot of people aren't really hungry in the morning. So it's not very hard for them to try to extend that window by not eating right away and then eating a bit later. Let's talk about breakfast skipping. Jeff, tell us your thoughts around what the research says about skipping breakfast. Is it good for us? Are there some consequences to it? What do you think? It's such a contentious topic. I think we can look as a good jumping off point from the last study to a recent study by Alessa Nas and their colleagues called Impact of Breakfast Skipping Compared with Dinner Skipping on Regulation of Energy Balance and Metabolic Risk. So mm-hmm. the title says it all. Basically, they're comparing what happens, and this is just acute, so one day, whether you skip breakfast or you skip dinner or have three meals. They used a relatively small group, but 17 people, a mix of women and men, uh, nine women, eight men, and a range of BMIs, so 11 people that were normal weight, five that were overweight, and one was underweight. So there was this pretty varied group there. And then also we have this context of regular breakfast eaters versus breakfast skippers. And there's some other research that points to the fact that habitual eaters do better when they eat breakfast and not skip it. And then there are the habitual breakfast skippers. I kind of have my doubts about that because I think that it is very trainable. And so people that are habitual breakfast skippers, when you've given them breakfast long enough, there's a lot of research from Heather Lighty's group in Missouri that shows that people, especially with uh, teens, that 
habitually skip breakfast, they generally do better to just keep it general. They do better when they eat breakfast with protein. Mm. Anyway, to this study, there's 13 were regular breakfast eaters and four were occasional skippers. So a little bit of a mix, but most people that generally ate breakfast. An interesting thing about the way they designed the study, and there's always study design questions. The calorie intake was the same on all days. So this is pretty important because if you skip breakfast, some people would argue that well, you're going to eat less during that day. Greg, I think you could probably talk what happens when people skip breakfast is that they actually move less. So it kind of ends up being a no net difference in energy expenditure versus energy intake. But this study, they chose to keep the calorie intake the same. So it was either spread through three meals or through two meals. They measured the energy expenditure, so basal metabolic rate, slightly higher actually on the meal skipping days. And I think that's related to the fact that there was larger meals consumed. The same amount of food was split over two instead of three meals. But Basically, the carb and fat burning, when you skip breakfast, yeah, you do statistically significant more fat and less carbohydrate, but it's practically negligible. It was about four grams per day of fat difference and 28 grams of carbs per day difference. So Mm. it's significant, but honestly, practically, I think negligible in a day-to-day practice. Right. What they found that is most interesting to me, though, there's something called the postprandial homeostasis model assessment index, which basically measures insulin sensitivity. It's a calculation based on glucose and insulin and also looking at glucose concentrations after lunch. So they were higher after lunch on the breakfast skipping day than on the dinner skipping day. Okay, so what this means is basically, and we've seen this in several other papers, breakfast exerts what's called a second meal effect. And some papers even show a third meal effect, meaning that breakfast affects how your body processes lunch and potentially dinner, meaning you have generally better blood sugar control. And this is seen both in healthy and people with diabetes. So I think this is an argument in favor of eating breakfast, even in healthy people. We should pause for a moment and talk about breakfast. Is breakfast the first meal that you have in the day? Is it a meal that occurs at a particular time of the day? The effect of that meal then influenced by the length of time between your last meal. So whether or not you had dinner later or earlier or even didn't have dinner. Now we're getting more into aspects of circadian biology, which is body timing. So let me collect your thoughts on this. Greg, I'll start with you. What do you think breakfast really means? Is it just the first meal of the day or is it a meal that occurs at a certain time? It's a very good question and very good points that you raise. I think technically it probably should refer to the first meal that you have during the day after sleeping. So you are truly breaking the fast, but actually historically, especially in research, it's somewhat arbitrary. And that's been a big problem, I think, previously, because particularly in nutritional epidemiology, people say, what did you have for lunch? What did you have for dinner? What did you have for breakfast? And there's no indication as to when that happens or how long it's been since the previous meal. And even in these studies, you don't actually know whether these people are always post-absorptive when they consume breakfast, for example. So it's a tricky question. I think the first meal of the day, though, probably is the most practical use of the term breakfast. And obviously, if Mm -hmm. you wait until 2 p.m. to consume your first meal, then that probably is your breakfast. Right. I thought you would say something different based on your background in circadian biology. Technically, yeah, you're breaking the fast and people love to say that as a reason to skip quote unquote breakfast and just wait till lunch and that becomes your breakfast. But as you know, there's so many interactions. So cortisols, the daily rhythm of cortisol, for example, and how that might interact with the first meal. The way I think about it is I see it as a certain number of hours and I don't know what that number really should be optimally, but I think of breakfast as morning time as it relates to your body clock. And again, maybe we don't know the exact timing of or the optimal window, but in a practical standpoint, I don't see it as the first meal after sleep, but rather 
something in that window relating to your cortisol and melatonin rhythms and the whole symphony that's going on with your hormones under the hood. And food certainly impacts it, which is why we see this second meal effect. If really it made no difference, lunch should be handled completely the same from your body as far as insulin and glucose goes. I think you're absolutely right, Jeff. As Dan said, some people wake up and they're not hungry. And often I think the reason is their sleep's artificially been restricted. So if you use an alarm to wake up, then you're probably not going to be hungry. And I'm not sure in those circumstances that you necessarily should be eating. So there's been some interesting work in recent years looking at roles of melatonin, for example, in glucose homeostasis in particular. And what people have found recently is that if people consume their first meal when they've still got a fair amount of melatonin floating through their blood, they're more insulin resistant than they would be otherwise. And that's probably because of roles of melatonin signaling on pancreatic function in particular. So going back to what you were speaking about then, Jeff, I think that's absolutely right. If you could look at things relative to circadian phase, then that would be very interesting and useful. And I think you'd probably think about what your anchoring point would be. So it might be the time at which you naturally wake up and when that first meal occurs relative to that time. The problem being that you don't necessarily know when someone is naturally going to wake up. You could use markers of circadian phase, but in terms of practicalities, that poses problems. The circadian system is largely trying to prepare the body to be functional for certain activities given previous history. So if you are eating breakfast regularly at, let's say, 8 a.m., then the body is going to be prepared for a meal at that time if it's regular exposure. Now, if all of a sudden you are skipping a meal or a couple days you skip, a couple days you don't, that could also have an influence on what's happening here behind the hood. A lot of these studies that are looking at breakfast skipping, they tend to be in people that usually are having breakfast. And even if a component of the study are people that sometimes do skip breakfast, they're not looking at people that always skip breakfast. So if you always have your first meal at, let's say, noon, is your body therefore, circadianly speaking, prepared for the ingestion of food substances, which would then have the second and third meal effect that would be improved, or you should say glucose response would be less concerning or less abnormal. That makes a lot of sense. And if someone does get into that routine, aren't they constantly effectively jet lagging themselves? 80% of our liver genes have a clock and are set in response to the food. So if someone only ate at 12, and I don't know if there's any studies that really look at it from this standpoint, but like we want a strong, robust circadian rhythm that's in tune with the light cycle and the temperature, the hot and cold and changes through the day and the light and dark cycle. So we're kind of then dissociating the light and dark from the food cycle. That seems potentially problematic, although this is all speculation. There's a lot of questions that remain to be addressed. And Greg, I'll get your take on this in a moment. But I think that if you're eating within the light period, so when the sun is out, then that is different than probably eating at night or to eat at night regularly. So I am curious about if you regularly maintain a certain pattern, then does your body adjust to that and address it in a what we can consider a propitious, healthy way? Now, so right now we're talking about what is the length of time that you are consuming food in a day? How long of a period is no food in your system? When is that window occurring? And then next, is the actual timing important too? So do you actually need to take in certain calories at a certain time of day in order for those calories to be handled effectively and for subsequent calories to be handled effectively as well? A couple of thoughts. One is it's really important to think about someone's chronotype with this. So chronotype is whether someone's more of a morning lark or a night owl. And I think a problem with some of these studies is that they often enforce times on people. So they say, 
to keep things consistent, you need to consume breakfast at this time, lunch at this time, and dinner at this time. But actually, they might be happening at different circadian phases unless they've ensured that people have relatively average chronotypes beforehand. Another thought is that there is good rationale for thinking that people's responses are consistently going to differ according to time of day. So, for example, we know that diet-induced thermogenesis is higher in the morning. We know that insulin sensitivity is likely higher a bit earlier in the day. And as I touched on previously, hormones like melatonin do influence postprandial responses. So consuming food when it's dark outside or in a dimly lit environment after your dim light melatonin onset or the time at which your body naturally secretes a certain amount of melatonin, that's likely to influence your responses to eating. Another thought is consistency is really important. And the degree to which this is dependent on the circadian system, I think is a bit unclear because many of the studies that have shown the importance of consistency haven't looked at it from a chronobiology perspective, but a couple of papers come to mind. So there's a guy at the University of Nottingham in the UK, Ian McDonald, who's done some really nice research in this area in recent times. And there was a nice crossover study he published last year. I think Al Hussein was the first author on it. And what they did is they took women and they had them consume an identical macronutrient profile and therefore amount of energy for two 14-day periods. And there was a 14-day washout between these periods. The difference was that in one of those periods, the women consumed a variable number of meals, so three to nine meals, and in another, they consumed a consistent number of meals. And what they found is that those that consumed the consistent number of meals had a greater thermoreffective feeding and a lower glucose response to a standardized test drink. They also found that people were less hungry and everything they found really pointed to the importance of consistency. Mm. I think it's important to recognize that cells throughout our body have their own molecular clocks that are ticking away always. And they're responsive to different stimuli. And in that way, as you mentioned, they can be uncoupled from each other. So the clock in the SCN is primarily entrained by the light-dark cycle. And by entrained, I just mean synchronized with the light-dark cycle. Whereas the clocks outside of the SCN are entrained by other inputs primarily, and often feeding and fasting. And the degree to which they are entrained by feeding and fasting cycles does differ by organ. So for example, the lungs and the kidneys might be more responsive to feeding than the liver is, at least in mice. Mm. So it's important to think about that because many people in the circadian biology field think that that uncoupling, so eating at inappropriate times, is important to those adverse metabolic consequences that you see subsequently. But what we don't have a good handle on is the degree to which that's the case. So what is the normal range of phase relationships between these different clocks that can be associated with good health. The focus at this point of the conversation is on breakfast skipping. Several of the studies we looked at show that when someone skips breakfast, they take in more calories later in the day. If you look at the sleep loss literature, you actually see a similar phenomenon. You see that people who get inadequate sleep tend to eat more calories later in the day. Also, we know that inadequate sleep is a risk factor for weight gain. So the question is, 
is it the timing of these calories or is it the impact of the time of day on our eating behaviors that could be contributing to the association that we see with sleep loss and, and weight gain? In the PANDA study we discussed earlier, when people ate later in the day, it tended to correspond with overconsumption for what that individual needed in terms of their own caloric need. So we discussed the metabolic consequences of breakfast skipping. In addition, I just highlighted that when we skip breakfast, we take in more calories later in the day, and there could be a tendency to take in, to overeat or take in more palatable calories like desserts. So Jeff, what other information do we have on breakfast skipping that can inform us as to whether this is potentially a healthy or unhealthy behavior? Yeah, I think I mentioned it briefly, but one other study that often comes to mind, and this was in people with diabetes, but again, skipping breakfast significantly increases postprandial hyperglycemia after lunch and dinner. So basically, the people's blood sugar rises much more after lunch and dinner when they've skipped breakfast compared with having the breakfast. Insulin basically doesn't work as well. It comes If you look at the insulin curve, it's a little bit delayed. And basically, a whole lot of things happen that you don't want to happen when you have diabetes uh, as far as your blood sugar control goes when you skip breakfast. So it's almost a no-brainer for me there. To talk about some of the fasting stuff, again, thinking just kind of in practical use of this stuff, that's why I, I really do think of time-restricted feeding, you know, shortening your eating windows as probably the go-to type of intermittent fasting. I think this is the most promising and the kind of first tool I look to because of the circadian rhythm aspect. So alternate day fasting, maybe we could talk about another time. There's a fair number of good studies using alternate day fasting when that is just as it sounds. So people eat normally one day and then either fast completely the next day or have about 500 calories. This consistency, I think, is really important. Even though we don't know enough about it as much as we want to, it's pretty clear that having consistent patterns leads to better glucose control and so on. So whenever the window seems to set you up for that daily consistent pattern, whereas alternate day fasting can be effective for weight loss. But I've always felt like it's putting you out of sync a little bit if you eat one day a lot and the next day nothing or 500 calories. So really, I'm excited to see the literature continue coming out and trying these different timing and, and things like that. But I think for someone wanting to try some type of fasting, I think time-restricted feeding windows is a great first place to go. That's great. And I think some questions to be resolved would be, can you take in calories? Let's say you have a consistent window and you eat between 10 and 6 every day. And as long as you're eating any time in that window, whether it's you're eating right at 10 or you're eating at noon or you're not eating until 2 and the timing of your dinner changes, the timing of your lunch changes, is that going to be effective? Is your body going to handle those calories in a manner that we would consider optimally healthy? Or do you have the limited eating window and it's even better? Is there room for optimization or is all the benefit from a meal at 10, a meal at 1, and a meal at 6, let's say? Yeah, the diabetes paper, that was from Freud's group, and I know that he published some earlier work, maybe in 2013, looking roughly at that question, but not in the context of time-restricted feeding. So there were overweight women, this is just from memory, who over 16 weeks or so were consuming weight loss diets. And the difference between the two groups was whether they consumed a higher proportion of their calories earlier in the day or later in the day. And those that consumed them earlier in the day had better metabolic outcomes. They lost more weight. They had greater improvements in glucose regulation and perhaps blood lipids too. So my inclination is probably to think that the same might hold true for a time-restricted feeding window. So even within that, let's say that you're eating in a 10-hour period or a 12-hour period, then provided that you're not starting it too early, 
or too late, I suspect that actually perhaps consuming more early within that window might be favorable. And also related to that, one study that we didn't touch on, well, two studies really from the University of Bath, they've published very interesting work on what happens when people skip breakfast in both lean people and obese people in the last few years. And what they found was that if people skip breakfast, then they do eat less, but they also move around less. So what I wonder is if you have that time-restricted period earlier in the day, then are you telling your brain you have energy available, you can still move around as per normal, such that eventually you could actually be more likely to be in a negative energy balance at the end of the day if you consumed your time-restricted eating period earlier in the day? Mm-hmm. You know what I found interesting from that study? The energy intake between the breakfast eaters and the people that they considered fasting, so eating their calories after noon, the difference in calorie intake over the course of the day was 338 calories. It was not statistically significant, but I think in the case here, that's a clinically meaningful difference. If you look at the last 40 years, at least on a population level, most of the weight gain from 1980s to now or to the 2010 time was described by a calorie excess of about 350 calories per day. So when you think about that, that explains almost all those calories. So there, yeah, there wasn't changes in weight loss, et cetera, but I felt that that was a discrepancy from the amount of calories that were different between the two groups in terms of what was consumed and then actually the results of the study. But it was a six-week study, so we could have seen different results if there was more people in the study and it went longer. I think one thing also that's interesting is that if people are spontaneously eating less, it might be a better option for someone who is necessarily sedentary. So it could be someone who's injured or they just have a job that for whatever reason just limits their physical activity. In those circumstances, if they restrict their eating period, then if they inadvertently reduce the total amount of food that they eat, then that's probably a good thing. Yeah. Speaking about breakfast, which is slightly off topic, but we're talking about whether or not skipping breakfast is important or useful or detrimental. But we do know in Stefan Guinet and I, our ideal weight program, we recommend in our lean maintenance, weight maintenance program, which is a version of a Mediterranean diet, we ask that people try to consume about 25% of their daily protein at breakfast because there's good solid evidence that shows that that will impact the calories that people want to consume. So they'll want to consume less calories over the course of the rest of the day. So it's a real opportunity to have a high protein breakfast to maintain weight. Other factors matter too. So things like fiber intake has shown similar results in modifying rest of the day calorie intake. Probably one of the most interesting studies to me, this is again, a bit of a tangent, but really fascinating. Last year, a group gave people high propionate producing inulin as a fiber supplement. They did imaging on the people after a period of time where they had this diet. And they found that people's responsivity to hyperpalatable food was diminished. And it made me think of this idea that the better you eat, the easier it is to eat better. And what does that mean? Well, that might mean taking in a lot of fiber and protein in the morning. And regardless of the timing of that, that might actually have a favorable effect on weight and metabolism for the rest of the day. Yeah, I think relevant to that too, the alternate day fasting studies in particular, if someone's eating just once on those days, then it's probably worth thinking about changing your macronutrient profile to factor that into the equation too, because many of the studies I think have used the same composition. So it could be 50% carbs, 
30% fat and 20% protein for both those days on which they're eating very little food and also days on which they're eating more food. But maybe on those days where they're consuming far less, they need to eat relatively more protein and less fat and carbohydrate. Mm. Yeah, I'll say, again, from a practical standpoint, that's something I do with people. I don't often use alternate day fasting, but I'll use some variation, typically like a 5-2, which is kind of two days non-consecutively of 500 calories. And absolutely switching the macros like that makes the adherence and the doability of it just completely different, so much easier for the person to do. Speaking of personal experience, I'd notice real effects about what I eat for breakfast and then what my appetite is like for the remainder of the day, regardless of when I eat it. Yeah. And, you know, I want to chime in one more thing about it. There was an alternate day fasting study that compared eating that one meal at lunch or the one meal at dinner or as three small meals. And they didn't measure any circadian biology aspects of it, but they found similar weight loss and the general changes in blood lipids and blood pressure were fairly similar. So the conclusion was that it's kind of whatever works best for that person. Right. I don't know if, again, that you could probably argue or detect something further deeper in there, but in this particular study, that was what they found. Yeah. You know, I'd be remiss not to talk about a study that I mentioned in my Paleo FX talk, but work by Addie Newfield-Cohen out of the Wiseman Institute in Israel looked at the daily pattern of production of certain enzymes that deliver nutrients to the mitochondria. And when looking at the protein pyruvate dehydrogenase, which determines the rate of glucose utilization for generating energy, she and her group found that mice that had the highest amount of this enzyme during sleep, which would then suggest that the ability of the mitochondria to burn sugar is greater at that time. So then they thought, okay, well, let's test this. And when her team then uh, supplied the mitochondria with glucose, the metabolism of sugar was found to be at its highest level too. So it seemed to process sugars well at the time when the enzymes that deliver sugar substrates to the mitochondria were highest. Now, conversely, they also looked at the enzyme carnitine polymotransferase, which is an enzyme that shuttles fatty acids into the mitochondria. And she found that this protein was produced at the highest rate when the mice were awake and physically active. They subsequently gave the animals fats and they were utilized most efficiently during their wake period. Now, I wouldn't say that this is necessarily happening in humans, but what it does suggest is that our body's ability to process nutrients, even of a certain type, is determined by the circadian production of certain enzymes. And so that adds to this conversation that we're having. I don't think it necessarily offers extraordinarily clear direction about what we should do, but we know something's at play here. Yeah. Okay, let's collect some final thoughts. We talked about a lot of stuff. There's more that we'll talk about in the future because this is a big and important topic. But Jeff, since you've been studying this for a while, you work with different clients, and also you've personally explored different patterns. What are your thoughts on the subject now? How would you get somebody started? Yeah, get someone started as far as they're looking to just improve their health or weight loss. Of course, it depends kind of where they're at and where they want to go at the risk of sounding obvious. But I would generally say if I needed to give a blanket recommendation from where I see all the research and everything we've talked about today, I think eating breakfast with protein, a good amount of protein, so at least 25 to 30 grams, if not more, is super important. Relatively soon, again, I'm going to kind of speak vaguely because we don't know exactly how many hours after you wake up, but I think relatively within first hour or two after waking and then eat most of your food when the sun is out. Now, of course, there's exceptions. Morning workouts, sometimes I do with athletes I work with suggest or, or work with them on doing some fasted endurance exercise. I think there is absolutely a place for that. But if we're just talking about general blanket recommendations for good health, and then I do like to stress eating with the sun in the summer. Right now, the sun here is out until around eight. Uh, you know, it'll get almost 8.39 soon. I think people can be pretty cavalier with their food to some degree at this time. 
Now in the winter, maybe it's not a hard stop at 4 p.m. or 4.30 p.m. when it gets dark. I think definitely, like we've mentioned several times now, putting the bulk of your food earlier in the day. I just think there's so much mechanistic and there's so much reasonable evidence to support that, even if we don't have these studies saying yes, that the perfectly designed studies. I mean, the writing is on the wall as far as I'm concerned. It's like eat most of your food earlier in the day and don't eat too late at night as, as just some general heuristics to live by. And that's from the study that Greg mentioned at the beginning, Ray Panda, I think close to 40% of the calories that were consumed in a day happened in the evening. Yeah. So that's a bit opposite of a common eating pattern where the evidence in your mind suggests that we would want to maybe flip-flop that and have more of those calories earlier in the day and fewer in the evening. Absolutely. There's a slide I often use when I give talks and the breakfast is like a little piece of toast and then lunch is like a salad. And then there's this kid with a giant plate of food in the evening. And that people always laugh because they recognize that that's their pattern. They restrict all day. And then I can't tell you how many times I hear I'm just starving at night or yeah, basically flipping that upside down, I think is just a smart thing to explore. And I'll offer a caveat to that then, Greg, I want to give your input. One problem with that method is that taking in a lot of calories earlier in the day should homeostatically and metabolically from what we're discussing, encourage us to take in fewer calories later. But so much of our eating patterns are not determined by mechanisms that are trying to promote balance within our body, but rather these pleasure-mediated drivers of food intake. So you're maybe not that hungry, but then you sit down to dinner and you're served a big plate of food and you've been trained to be a plate cleaner. right? And therefore you're now over-consuming because you weren't compensating with fewer calories earlier in the day. And so that's another confound here, right? Metabolically, maybe that makes perfect sense. But for all intents and practical purposes, that might be more problematic for some right. because of the way that they eat food. And so simply restricting an, an occasion to eat might be better just because when they sit down to eat, they have these ingrained behaviors that are designed to clean their plate regardless of what their body's telling them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Completely agree with you guys. Just a couple more things would be consistency is really important, as we discussed. As you mentioned there, I think practicality also is crucial. And what needs to be considered is how important different things are to you, because something might be perfect metabolically, not perfect, but it might be superior metabolically. But perhaps what you want is different from that. Perhaps you're really interested in being as productive as possible. And for that reason, skipping breakfast is more conducive to your goals. And then obviously you have family constraints, that kind of thing too. One thing that I was curious about your input on was whether you would transition people gradually into a restricted eating period or have them just jump into it straight away. And just before I get your responses to that, one more thing is if people are eating less when they restrict their eating period, then that's not always actually a good thing. So sometimes someone's actively trying to gain weight in those circumstances, time-restricted eating might not be optimal. Likewise, if you've got someone who historically has had reproductive issues or something like that, which are particularly adversely affected by negative energy balance, then that's also something worth considering. Mm. Anyway, back to the question, Jeff, how would you transition someone into a restricted eating period? Would you go full bore straight into it or would you try and shift things one day at a time? Yeah, yeah that's a good question. And just briefly at your points about who it's not appropriate for, I'm glad you mentioned that because definitely if you're an 18-year-old football player who's trying to build muscle and gain 20 pounds of muscle in the offseason, this is probably not for you. I mean, it's an option, but yeah, eating later at night might be a good thing. But yeah, 
when I put it into practice. I think in this case, this is one time where a hard and fast rule, people tend to prefer that because with time-restricted eating windows, you don't really emphasize the food quality. I mean, I certainly would still work with someone to get a good pillars of breakfast, lunch, dinner, and so on. But what's appealing to people about this, I think, or I've noticed is, okay, all I need to worry about is these 10 hours. So I'm going to start it. 8.30 and I'm going to send at you know, 6.30 and that's it. So people, I suppose you could creep the hours down gradually, but I think starting with these hard windows, it's effective. What I will do gradually, and this is a little bit less often, but if I want to work someone towards eventually like a 20 to 24 hour fast, so I, eventually if I want to get them to go from dinner to dinner once a week, because some people can do really well with that, meaning fasting from dinner to dinner, then I might say, okay, let's go 16 hours here and then let's go 18 hours and creep towards that. I do that less often, but some people will respond, I think, quite well to that. One more thought was people with dysglycemia also might be advised to avoid time-restricted eating or just to consider it with some trepidation, just because one consistency among many studies seems to be that skipping breakfast does lead to greater variability in blood glucose, particularly in the afternoon and evening. So if you're predisposed to hyperglycemia or anything like that, then that's probably worth considering. Good point. So we've talked about whether or not to skip breakfast, and I think we don't have a clear indication that one should or shouldn't, but the evidence suggests that breakfast is important. And now the questions are, if you are to have the timing of that first meal creep up, but it doesn't vary in terms of its timing day by day, is that going to then create a situation that is metabolically healthy consistently for an individual? Does it have to be at a certain time of day after a sleep period? More questions to address there, but so far a breakfast seems like it's a good idea. We did talk about caveats too in terms of eating patterns and what that can look like. We didn't talk about lunch skipping, so having a big breakfast and then having either no lunch or a small lunch and then having a small dinner. So there's a, a variety of different options here that we could consider. I currently don't practice anything consistent. When I wake up in the morning and I'm not hungry, I will try to extend my window by taking in food later. Sometimes I have an appetite in the morning and sometimes I don't. So I'll have some coffee or tea and then I'll wait until I get hungry. And that seems to make sense for me because I'm always trying to listen to what my body's telling me about my hunger versus forcing it at a time where my body's telling me something different. So that's at least the approach that I'm playing with. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to everybody, but I think it's worth sharing. And then the other thing that I play with is even if I have breakfast a little bit later, then sometimes I won't get hungry until two or three in the afternoon. And there's times now where I'm skipping and I'm trying some exogenous ketones, beta-hydroxybutyrate to keep me feeling cognitively sharp and suppress my appetite until dinner time. And for me, that seems like it could be a winning strategy in terms of getting breakfast earlier in the day, but avoiding excess calories across the 24-hour period by allowing me to wait a little bit longer till I have hopefully an early dinner. So that's two things that I've been playing with. Greg, do you do any sort of fasting yourself? I do. So periodically, particularly around the holidays, if I have a bit of a blowout day, maybe it's Christmas or something like that, then I think shortly afterwards, actually going and doing a 24-hour fast is useful. More than anything, I do it for psychological reasons, just because I think it's good to appreciate that we're fortunate to have all of this food around. And also there are potential benefits too, which we haven't spoken about today, but um, whether it's increasing autophagy or a variety of other things, then I think that can be a useful practice. But also on a more routine basis, I do eat in a very consistent window. 
So I wake up very early in the morning and then about an hour afterwards, begin my eating period and keep it relatively consistently timed each day at about 12 hours. So I just try to keep that as consistent as possible. And then obviously from time to time, life gets in the way or you go out on the weekend or you go out for food in the evening with friends and that changes things. But when I have more control over things, I do try to emphasize keeping timing as consistent as possible. And how about in terms of what your meals look like? Do you have to have a big breakfast and a light dinner or is it balanced across three meals? Tell us about that. I eat a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> I eat four relatively big meals each day. Uh, typical breakfast, what did I have this morning? I had half a kilo of natural yogurt with a melon and lots and lots of nuts. And that's a relatively normal meal size for me. But if anything, I think I go for a slightly bigger breakfast. And then the final meal of the day, because I have goals related to body composition and also to training, I try to make sure that I consume lots of protein and preferably lots of relatively slowly digested protein in that final meal to try and maintain muscle protein synthesis as long as possible overnight. Yeah. So your strategy with the goal of both maintaining lean mass and also keeping your body fat lower. And then Jeff, I know that you mostly eat when it's light out. Is that still what you do? Yeah. For probably five or six years, I've tried to aim with that general goal. I've pretty much always make an effort to eat breakfast. Sometimes it's maybe 6.30 in the morning, which is a little earlier than I might prefer. But if I have to be out of the house, I feel that's that important to how well I feel through the day, my consistency and hunger and things like that. I used to be a little bit stricter eating, let's say, between an 8 and 11 or 8 to 12 hour window. The last, I guess, six months, I've loosened that up because I've been training for an Ironman triathlon. So if we think in terms of the stress bucket, and we have the stress bucket that could be work stress or family stress or lack of food stress or training. And when the training stress goes up, I don't want to also stress my body that much by going to bed hungry or I mean, I still don't have a late night snack, but I might eat dinner or eat something as late as, I don't know, seven or eight, sometimes 8.30. Great. Thank you guys. There's so much more to discuss about fasting. We try to put some borders on it just so that we could focus a little bit more on some of the ideas that are generated simply off of breakfast skipping. But as you've heard, you could skip lunch, you could have smaller dinners or bigger dinners, eating patterns matter. There's other health benefits that are a part of fasting as well. There's other benefits of what composition of your breakfast looks like. There's different goals. So it's complex, but the work is promising, particularly around just metabolic health and weight regulation. Probably some of the most interesting aspects is that people report improved sleep, improved energy, and are able to lose weight and maintain it. And that was from the Sachin Panda study with first author is Gil. And so I'm excited to see some of the things that we brought up today explored in more depth. But thank you, gentlemen, for your time and your expertise and contributions. I look forward to having you both on the show again to explore this subject further. You guys have a great day, both of you. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.